0: I have uh, been waiting to, I've been looking forward so much to coming up here and sharing God's word with you. I missed you while we were gone. We had a great couple weeks in Tennessee with Angelo's folks, and then I had a great week at the home office in Winona Lake and had a great pastor's conference there. But please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 18 this morning. We're going to be talking this morning about the finished work of Christ. So please stand with me as we read God's word. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have been ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. To do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful declaration, your truth. We pray, Lord, you'd open our eyes today as we look at it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I ran out of gas recently on the freeway. Embarrassing. I waited 30 minutes for a rescue truck to come and bring gas to me. Now, I have been a licensed driver in the state of California for 27 years, since I was 17 years old. My first car was a 1973 Pontiac Firebird. Now, back then, I had an excuse for running out of gas. The gas gauge didn't work. And so I had to time it just right. There were several times I misjudged it and several embarrassing moments, which we can't get into today. But ever since then, I have owned cars that have gas gauges that work. So if I run out of gas now, no excuse. Now, the constant need to fill our cars with fuel is sort of like how the Old Testament sacrificial system worked. You had to keep going back with new sacrifices to keep things working between you and God. No gas in the car, car won't run. No sacrifice for your sin, life won't work. No forgiveness, no cleansing. Now in Hebrews chapter 10, the author begins with a problem. The law was limited in its ability to deal with sin. The repetitive nature of the system showed how the sacrifices couldn't permanently take away sin. What that resulted in is a burdened conscience on the part of those who wanted to be right with God. The answer to this problem came in the person of Jesus Christ. We've just read that. But even so, on this side of the cross, many who follow Jesus live with burdened hearts and lives that don't run so well. We need a fresh injection of life-changing truth. Now, this is the truth I want you to get today. That because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, we are secure in him and free to serve his purposes in our generation. I get that last part, free to serve his purposes in our generation, from Acts chapter 13, 36, where it says that David, after he served the purpose of God in his generation, died. He did what God called him to do while he was here on earth. Because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, we are secure in him and free to serve the purposes of God in our generation. Now, to fully appropriate this, many of us need to cut through some junk in our lives. First thing most of us need to do is to really understand the inadequacy of human effort. We need to really understand the inadequacy of human effort. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. That there is nothing we can do to work our way to God. The author of Hebrews tells us the law was insufficient. Notice the negative words with relation to the law's ineffectiveness. Notice what the law could not do. Look at verse 1. It can never by the same sacrifices make perfect those who draw near. Make perfect really means to save. It can't save those who come near. Verse 4 says, it is impossible to take away sins. Verse 5 says, God says, I don't desire those sacrifices. Verse 6 says, I don't have any pleasure in those offerings. And verse 11 again says, it can never take away sins. Not going to happen. Verse 1 tells us the same sacrifices were offered year by year. We had read in chapter 7, verse 27, that the priests offered those sacrifices daily. Whether it was daily, weekly, monthly, or year by year, every priest stood ready to make the sacrifices as they came to him. That was the nature of ministry in those days. The priests would minister at the altar. They would receive animals. Each person would lay the head their hand on the head of the animal they had brought. And the animal's throat was slit. Its blood would run out. Blood would be put on the altar. The insides of the animal would be pulled out. This is all the job of the priest. Then they'd take and they'd skin the animal. They'd take the insides, they'd burn them till they were ashes. And the smell of the fire... And the blood of the animal, Leviticus 3 tells us, was a soothing aroma to the Lord. God would smell that. It would appease his wrath over sin. They had to do it daily. This elaborate bloody ritual. Many times during the day. All day long, every week, year after year. Thousands of animals. Thousands upon thousands of animals sacrificed for the sins of the people. And why was it done? For temporary covering of sin. The work was never finished. Verse 2, we read in verse 3 as well that under the law, the sacrifices were a continual reminder of sins. It was this kind of like a built-in alarm, reminded you of how far you always fell short. How you did the same things over and over and over again and kept coming back with sacrifices to pay for those sins. I can imagine the priest thinking, oh no, not him again. Oh no, he brought a bull this time. What did he do? Can you please stop sinning so much? Except that the priest also knew he was a sinner. And that he had the same weaknesses and he was doing the same things. Verse 4 tells us it was impossible for those sacrifices to take away sin. Impossible. And there were no chairs in the temple. The priest stood up all the time. They were always at work. No chairs. They had to stand because their work was never done. People were continually sinning and in need of cleansing. Cleansing. There was no adequate once-for-all solution to the problem to take away the sins. They consistently rebelled against God, and there was a well-worn path to the temple to take care of our sin, to their their sin, for a while, just for a little while. It's like your car and gas. you got to go back again and again and again and get it filled up every time it runs down. And we tend to think of our sin in the same way. Not fully dealt with until we do something to make it right. I don't know about you, but often I have a hard time thinking that Jesus' blood really covers all of my sins. Well, maybe yours, but not the ones I've done. What it shows is that we're not fully in sync with God and experiencing the benefits of Jesus' mission accomplished. That Jesus lived and died and was buried and came back to life. That the cross and the tomb are both empty. That he lives. That Christ's one offering is totally sufficient. Notice the positive words regarding uh, what Jesus has done and the effects of it. Look at verse 7. When he comes into the world, it says that he says, I have come to do your will, O God. He came to do the will of the Father. Look at verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified. Verse 14, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, for a biblical statement of the sacrifice that could take away sins, the writer went to Psalm 40. In in, in chapter 10 here, verses 5, 6, and 7, it's a quote of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. In that, he saw a prophetic word appropriate to Jesus at the time of his incarnation, when he came into the world. The body prepared for him was given back to God as a living sacrifice. He said, I have come to do your will. That sums up the entire life and earthly ministry of Jesus. Wholehearted obedience to the will of God is the sacrifice that God really desires. And because Jesus has fulfilled the Father's will, he has sanctified his people. And provided the salvation or perfection that could not be attained under the sacrificial system. We're secure in Jesus. Romans 8.3 says this. What the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did. Sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh. Hebrews 10 shows a clear contrast between the temple sacrifices and Jesus' sacrifice. In the temple, there were many sacrifices over and over again. Jesus made one sacrifice for all time. In the temple, the, the priest ministered again and again and again. Jesus once. Now, we do know that he is ministering now on our behalf, interceding for us according to the will of God. But in terms of paying for sin, once. In the temple, sin was covered over. Jesus takes away sin. In the temple, animals were killed. At the cross, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. The temple sacrifices temporarily dealt with sin. Jesus took care of sin permanently. In the temple, the priests stood. Christ sits at the right hand of the throne of God. When I'm done with this sermon, I'm going to sit down. That's what you're hoping. I'm going to sit down, and afterwards, I'm going to get back up again. And I'll sit down and get back up. Jesus sat down, signifying that the work of pain for the sins of the world was done, finished. What are the benefits of Christ's finished work? I want to highlight a couple. First, there is forgiveness. Forgiveness, release from the penalty and power of sin. Pardon. Pardon for sin. Instead of that constant remembrance of sins, which was really more than just a calling to mind, it involves some appropriate action like repentance or some sacrifice given to pay for that sin. See, a pardon that has to be given repeatedly doesn't give the same peace, like a pardon that is given once for all. Jesus takes away sins. Do you have forgiveness of your sins? Forgiveness of your sins. If you know Jesus, you do. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says that he will make perfect those who come to him. Chapter, uh, verse 2 says they will be cleansed. Verse 14, perfected again. And then verses 10 and 14, the word sanctified. All those words point to the same thing. Being saved from sin. Being saved from the power and the penalty of sin. In verse 16, verse 16, The writer quotes Jeremiah 31 again. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Their sins and their lawless deeds. Is God forgetful? No. But he chooses to not relate to us on the basis of our sin anymore. He chooses not to hold that sin against us because Jesus took all the penalty for the sin on the cross. Even so though, We make up our own way of dealing with our sins instead of relying upon Jesus' sacrifice. We try to hide our sin. We try to cover it over. We try to cover it up. We start hiding from other people. It becomes difficult to get close to us because of all the cover ups that we have to do. We try to dull the pain of sin with false good feelings from self harming and destructive substances or activities. We even hide behind busyness, all in an attempt to forget the pain of sin, which amazingly has already been dealt with at the cross by Jesus. See, we fall into the trap of setting up our own system to gain forgiveness or feel forgiven. And it goes something like this, I can only be forgiven if I first do something if I feel bad enough about my sin, if I punish myself enough, if if I beat myself up enough about what I have done, then I can be forgiven. See, we forget or don't understand how forgiveness comes about. Forgiveness was secured at the cross and experienced when we put our faith in Jesus. Jesus. It's not when we make amends or when we feel bad enough for our sin that forgiveness comes. It's accomplished by Christ's work, not ours. In our man-made system, we become the focus. In Hebrews, Jesus is. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. In the old system, there was that built-in reminder about how sinful you were, how far you fell short. With Jesus, no such thing exists with regard to our standing with God. With Jesus, there is no such thing with regard to our standing with God. Even so, we think there must be. We think there must be something we must do to take care of the weight of our sin even though it was already paid for at the cross. Go to Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, we read the truth. It says, when you, uh, in verse 13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us All our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Nailed it to the cross. I learned something this week from a passage we often go to. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John cha- chapter 1 and verse 7 and also verse 9. First John 1 John 1.7 says this, If we walk in the light, I've quoted this to you several times, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And if you look at the tense of the Greek here, it means that the blood continually cleanses us from all sin. Continual action. A real Christian, as a habit, lives in truth and holiness, not lies and sin, which results in cleansing from sin as the Lord continually forgives his children. Now go to 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Continual confession of sin is a sign of being a genuine Christian. But here's the thing. I will often, I'm the kind of guy that I'm like uh, exhibit A for having a guilty conscience, okay? And I I beat my, this sermon is for me. I beat myself up over sin all the time. Sins I committed 20 years ago or just yesterday. But whatever the case, very often, even though I say, it was finished at the cross. He nailed my sin to the cross. What do I do? I take my sins and I think, Oh, I better uh, confess this sin. As if somehow I would be cut off from God if I didn't. It's not the basis for our standing in Christ. It's the outflow of our standing in Christ. See, when Jesus forgives us, we want to confess our sins because we don't want to displease him. We don't want to grieve his heart. See, 1 John 1, 1.9, instead of us focusing on confessing every single sin we commit, what John is pointing to is the ongoing recognition and acknowledgement that we are sinners in need of the continual cleansing and forgiveness that Jesus gives. It's a different mindset. If we keep confessing our sins thinking that's going to keep us secure in Christ, we are, we're, we're listening to a lie. What keeps us securing Christ is Christ and his finished work, not us and our continuing work of confession. Now, when there is no ongoing confession of sin, then the relationship is hindered. And more of a breaking needs to take place before we will recognize and acknowledge God again. We know that has happened in many of our lives, we ebb and flow. It's like when we and one of our relatives, maybe a spouse or a child or a sibling, has a falling out. We're still related, but not relating to one another in a healthy way as we ought to. Could happen to someone within the body as well. So there needs to be a fresh application of forgiveness and love on the part of both parties for us to come back together and things to go back how they should be. But it doesn't initiate the relationship. That already exists. The relationship doesn't go away. What it does is it mends the relationship. So reconciliation and making things right and confessing sin and even setting up self-discipline-inducing boundaries in our lives are things God uses for good and wants to be a part of our life. See, we still sin, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, making us aware of it and our need to confess it and turn from it. To restore the relational connectedness. But not to like get saved all over again. As if somehow every time you sin, you lose it. We're secure in our relationship with God. And relating to the reality of forgiveness is the idea of no more guilt. And again, I'm Mr. Guilty Conscience 101, so I'll tell you, what is guilt? Guilt is a... um, Constant, condemning reminder of how sinful and responsible for our sin we are. Are you hounded by a heavy weight of guilt? Well, let me remind you this morning of Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I who are in Christ have an enemy. We have an accuser and we also accuse ourselves. But God wants us to live in freedom from guilt. In chapter 10 verse 2 here in Hebrews, it says that if the the, the sacrifice could be made that covered it all, there'd be no consciousness of sin. Well, Jesus' sacrifice was made for once for all. So on the part of believers, there should be no consciousness of sin. But what does that mean? It means the no consciousness for sin means we are no longer viewed as liable for our sin's punishment. We are no longer liable for our sin's punishment. Verse 16, when he quotes Jeremiah 31, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. It means we won't be held accountable to pay for our sin. Jesus already did that for us. God no longer relates to us on the basis of that sin. When the Father sees us, he sees Jesus. As John Bunyan wrote in his book, Grace Abounding, he said, Sinner, you think that because of your sins and infirmities, I cannot save your soul. As if God was talking to him. Sinner, you think that because of your sins and infirmities, I cannot save your soul, but behold, my son is with me, and upon him I look, and not on you, And I will deal with you as I am pleased with him. See, this doesn't mean, this idea of no more guilt doesn't mean we never feel guilty or think about our sin or are never aware of it. That's a part of the Christian life. But it means we stop trying to pay the penalty for our sin. It was already paid. See, when Jesus died for our sin, he secured forgiveness. And everyone who believes in him receives that forgiveness. We've got to walk in light of the truth that we say we know. All sin, past, present, and future, is covered. Because of that, we will want to confess our sins to God. To confess means to admit it, it means to say the same thing about your sin as God says about it, and then make things right with others. But those actions, again, are not the basis for our forgiveness for our sin. Christ's once-for-all offering was. See, there's a difference between humble and contrite confession of sin and a morbid dwelling on sins already confessed and forgiven. David understood it. In Psalm 51, after he had sinned grievously, here's what he cried out to God in Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Here's what he prayed. Verse 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you won't despise. Paul knew it in romans chapter 8 verse 15 he said you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out abba father we are accepted in christ which leads to confident faith in Christ." Because we are accepted in Christ, it leads to confident faith. In verse 19 of chapter 10, it says that we have confidence to enter the holy place because of Jesus. If it was up to us, yes, we would be insecure about our standing with God. We couldn't do enough. But the writer of Hebrews, as the Holy Spirit spoke through him, said that we are to draw near in full assurance of faith. With no fear before God. With with humility in holiness of heart, but thanking God for what he has already done. We don't have to worry if we've done enough. We who have put our faith in Christ, God looks at, at Jesus, not us. So, are you sure of your salvation? And what's that based upon? If you're in Christ, God is sure of your salvation because of Jesus' actions. Not because of anything we could do, ever. He has called us and we have responded in faith to Him. So today, if you are feeling in unassured or insecure in your relationship with the Lord and you've come to know Christ, I'm here to simply remind you Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust Him to do and be for you what He said He will do and be. What He has promised. Identify with His finished work on the cross. You know, in the Old Testament, when those who come, came with the animals, when they would lay their hand on the head of the animal, most scholars believe It is in identification with that animal. As if to say, what is going to happen to this animal deserves to happen to me. This animal is an appropriate substitute for my sins. It's a good picture of what it means to put our faith in Jesus. Look to the cross. That what happened to Jesus should have happened to us. That it is our sin that put him on the cross. That we deserve the punishment he took. And that he is an appropriate sacrifice for us. Identify with Jesus by faith and trust him to accomplish what you cannot. Now we could end right there. We could end right there understanding the inadequacy of human effort. And experiencing the benefits of Jesus' mission accomplished. But there is something more. See, this is not just for us to have for ourselves. If that's all it was, we'd just be fat and happy. I'm so glad that Jesus did this for me. I'm just waiting to go to heaven now. Yes, we're waiting to go to heaven, but what do we do until the Lord returns or, or he takes us? Home to be with him. What do we do? We must be about sharing the good news with everyone we meet. Understanding the inadequacy of human effort and experiencing the benefits of Jesus' mission accomplished gives us freedom to do what God has called us to do. We can serve the purpose of God in our generation. We don't have to be fixated on ourselves and are our, our condition sin-wise. That's been taken care of, and as we walk in the light, God then leads us into the realms He wants us to be, to, do what? Fulfill His purposes. Serve His purposes. Do His will. Look at verse 14 of chapter 10. It says this, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And if you look at the tense of the Greek word, it means those who are being sanctified. And then you look at 16 and he says, I will make, I will make a covenant with them. I will put my laws upon their heart, on their minds. I will write them. Their sins, their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. What it implies is a process that continues. Not something static that ended when we came to know Christ. It implies a message being shared, a process continuing on. And I realize that some people are more wired for discipleship and helping believers grow than they are for evangelism and sharing their faith. But neither is an option. They are both indispensable. They are both non-negotiable for believers. It doesn't matter if you have the specific gift or not. We are called to share our faith in Christ. If you don't have the gift of evangelism, that's okay. You're still called to share your faith in Christ with everyone you meet. You know, Grace Church, we have a great purpose statement. Why we exist. We exist to worship God, build up believers, and reach others for Christ. And I will tell you what, honestly, I, will, I often think of the first two, worshiping God and building up believers, and kind of stay in that realm and say, and if I get around to it, I will reach others for Christ. But guess what? There are three things, and they all are in a process. It's not do this one, then do this one, then do this one. It's a process, and one feeds the other. As we worship God, we want to build one another, and we want to go and share our faith. And when we go and share our faith, we want to worship God, and so on and so forth. God uses them in a, in a very beautiful process to feed off of one another. In 1983, when I was a brand new believer, a one-year-old believer, a friend of mine said to me, what would you do if you could do anything? And my answer was very simple. Tell people about Jesus. I was going to uh, business school to get uh, my business degree and I was going in a whole other direction and and this question stopped me in my tracks and I said, tell people about Jesus. And I'll tell you what, through the years, it has ebbed and flowed and and I've been strong and weak in in that mission, but it has not changed. It is still the same today. What do I want to do with my life? Tell people about Jesus. I brought a fishing pole with me today and I love to fish, and I've got a number of fishing poles. But this one is special because I caught this fishing pole while I was fishing two years ago in Tennessee on the Tennessee River. Really, the Fort Loudon Lake. It's pretty, it was pretty cool. I was, I was fishing, and I was pulling something in, and all of a sudden, it snagged. I'm thinking, I, got, I, I caught a, a log, <laughs> which you can do there. And I'm, I'm reeling it in, and all of a sudden, up comes this fishing pole. And interestingly, there's a, a name on it, Mike Schaefer. Knoxville, Tennessee. Very close to my name, in fact. I called the number on this, on this... Well, he didn't live there anymore. So I've been having a good time with this fishing pole for the last two years. I cleaned it up. It's my favorite fishing pole. It's a Berkeley enforcer. When I was a kid, I caught 40 fish in one day. It was one of the crowning achievements of my childhood. About 10 years old, 40 beautiful trout up near Bishop. Now, my last trip to Tennessee... When I was missing you so much, I uh, caught 50 to 60 fish in one day with my team. By the way, I did did miss you, and I I couldn't wait to get back. I I, I love going on vacation, and I love coming back. But I caught 50 or 60 fish in one day with my team. uh, Michael and and Ariana and Savannah and Sophia. We could not stop uh, catching fish. At one point... I forgot to tell this the first hour, but you get the extra, you get the special uh, story. I'm fishing with my left hand. I told the kids, I'm going to catch a fish in both hands. So I'm catching with this, and all of a sudden, there we are. It's on, it's on. I take a, a piece of wood that I had made for Sophia and Savannah and with, a, with a hook on it. I stuck that one in there. There it is, two at one time. They were biting so quick. We kept 27 of them, cleaned them, and, and cooked them. It was beautiful. I I cannot catch and release. I did it for a week, and I'm like, when I start catching so many, I'm like, there is no way I'm not killing these and eating them. I, I, I can't catch and release. But I'll tell you what. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. But there's something different about Jesus' call to be a fisher of men. There's something different. See, when I fish, I'll tell you what I'm thinking about Catching, cleaning, and eating for myself and to tell you the story. But Jesus calls us to be fishers of men to catch and to rescue the perishing. Not for ourselves, not that we can tell the story of what we did, but for the kingdom of God, for heaven, for eternity. A couple years ago in Irvine, right near where I live, Heritage Park, they have a a big uh, uh, pond. It's a big pond, and they needed to drain it so that they could clean it and what have you. They'd start draining it and draining it, and it gets down closer to the bottom, and the water started swarming. It started moving. They realized there were thousands upon thousands of fish and snakes and turtles in that water. And the people came down to the, to the pond in droves, but not to catch and eat, but to catch, to rescue To rescue these that would perish. Huge fish, huge turtles, and even some snakes. See, that's what God calls us to do, to rescue the perishing. We don't do it on our own. We are sent by God to fulfill his purpose in our generation. Not somebody else's generation, right now. When we're living. Let me bring up the main point one more time. Oh, and by the way, I want to say something. In your your bulletins, there's an insert on reaching your uh, neighborhood on Labor Day weekend. And we want you to pray, we're encouraging you to find some way to connect with one family or two or three or your whole neighborhood in some way by having a gathering to build some relationships that hopefully will build some bridges to share your faith in Jesus with them. But let me bring up the main point again. Because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, We are secure in him and free to serve the purposes of God in our generation. More than any other place in Hebrews, these 18 verses show clearly the Christian gospel of the grace of God in Christ and calls us to think seriously about the ramifications and the implications of this message upon our lives, our families, and and this church, Christ's church. So my prayer is this, that we rest in the truth today. And then we take opportunities that God gives us as individuals and families and as a church to reach out in love with the life-changing message of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Let's pray together. The worship team is going to come back up. We're going to have an opportunity to respond to God in worship. But let's just pray and just just seek God in, in this regard. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you that you are so good. We thank you and praise you that you have made a sacrifice that is totally sufficient for sin. We thank you, Lord, that those of us who have come to faith in you are secure in that. And that then we are freed up to do whatever you want us to do. And so, Lord, we ask you for your will to be done in us and through us for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.